today, as I mentioned, I'm going to uh, start a, 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 some, some messages on the subject of uh, revival. I um, have told you a little of my story in the past. I grew up and uh, my parents were saved right around the time I was born. My mom was raised in church, around church, but grew up in a very rough environment. And uh, my dad was raised in a, a non-believing home. Uh, very, 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 very rough environment. But somewhere around the time that I was uh, coming into being in their lives, um, my, my mother's sisters were a part of this uh, little, wonderful little Pentecostal Church of God church uh, on, on College Hill in Texarkana, Arkansas. And uh, there was this revival happening, and uh, they invited my mom and dad to come and to uh, come to this church. And it was just this little church in this small little place that to many people in the world uh, was and maybe still is even inconsequential. But at that, at that place, in that moment in time, really the course of my family's life was forever changed. And some of my earliest memories in life really was at that little church on Grimm Street. Uh, I remember distinctly the smell of the church. I remember distinctly the pews. I remember distinctly the wood floor. I remember distinctly uh, moments around that church when things would happen and I saw God at work among his people where I saw family members and friends and, and I saw people have moments with God that changed them. Um, and in that little place, I began to learn about the presence of God. I began to learn about the move of God. I began to learn what it looked like when God did amazing, incredible things among his people and they responded to him. But, but also, I think honestly, I also learned what it was like when, when the church didn't, when the church didn't do what it was supposed to do. One of the greatest Moments, some of the greatest moments and memories of my life were in that little church. I came to know Jesus in that church. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in that church. I, I experienced healing for the first time in my church, in that church. But I, I honestly, on the other side of that, also experienced some of the greatest pain in my life in that church. I experienced when, when a church and church leadership uh, mishandled people and, and, and negative things happened and. And it was in those places and spaces that as a, as, a, as a kid that I really began to have a lot of questions about what it meant to be the people of God and to experience the presence of God and then, and then what that actually looked like in my life. What could, what could cause a person to have an encounter with God where they were healed or where they were saved or where they were delivered and free and you see an incredible transformation happen in their life but then also see people have be around those uh, moments and places and spaces and then go on and in other places and spaces behave in anger or meanness or hatred or in devastating ways. And those things really caused me to, in one way, love the idea of revival and love the idea of these encounters with God, but also question the validity of those experiences. Some of you maybe know what I'm talking about today. Maybe you've been a part of great moves of God where there were power encounters and things happened and yet later you were disappointed. Maybe in others, 
maybe in yourselves. I mean, the history of the church is, is a history in which we read stories of great moves of God, but then we also read stories of the men or women who led those great moves of God also failing and sinning and hurting people. Hello? And when those failures and those hurts and those things happen, it causes people like me to say, was that really real? Am I the only one? Was that revival real? Was that move of God real? Was that encounter or that experience real? God, how do I know? And then growing up in all of this, there's been this weird, I, I, I don't know, you may not feel this, this weird pull between I love those moments and I love those experiences and I long for them, but I also, I'm also grow weary and I also grow skeptical of when things like that can happen and yet people's character and their lives over time. And so I feel constantly pulled as if I'm having to choose between revival and steady growth and development. There's a part of me that in seasons of my life have thought, man, if we could just have a revival, right? And in my mind, what I meant by that was moments of power encounter with God. If we could just have revival, it would shift everything. But then there's also been seasons of my life where I thought, you know what? I'm not looking for some big explosion of whatever. What we really need is for people to get up every day and choose to surrender to Jesus. And there has been this false narrative that has been created in my own heart, in my own mind, as if I have to choose between those two things. And it's almost as if the church, the church at large, has almost as if it's taken up position on either side of this issue. Either we're a revival church or we're a discipleship church. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? Well, is that a is that a word church or is that a or is that a worship church? Is that a is that a revival church or is that a is that a discipleship church? And if you're not super careful, you can find yourself staking a claim in the ground or staking a position, right? We're this or we're this, as if being this is opposed to being this. So it's really put me on a quest in my life to study study in scripture what is it what is what does revival mean what does it mean when moves of god happen in scripture what does it look like are are there churches are, are we designed to be like this or are we designed to be like that and so today and next week i really want us to talk about revival and i want us to get a, a biblical understanding of revival so that we can have an experiential understanding of revival cuz here's what i'm afraid of i'm afraid that i've raised children who don't know what it's like to spend time on their face before God in his power and his presence, so much so that they couldn't get up if they wanted to. Because I've had those experiences, and those experiences have marked me. And if I'm being really honest with you, I've had those experiences and they marked me and there were people beside me in those altars who had those experiences also and I grew up with them and I grew up around them and then they wandered away from Jesus or they did lots of things that I didn't understand and so it's caused me to question if those things were real so much so that I've thought to myself, is that even really necessary? 
But I'm becoming more convinced than ever that, yes, it is necessary. And just because people are people and choices are made every day that doesn't honor what God has done in the past, it doesn't mean that he doesn't want to do it again now. Just because of my own failures and my own mistake and my own ignorance and my own lack of character doesn't mean that God still isn't at work and he doesn't bring his people to places and moments in which he does incredible things. I believe that he's bringing the city of Durban and I believe he's bringing North Place to one of those moments. So if we look at scripture and if we define revival, what is revival? Revival is a season of God's disruptive movement among his people to stimulate, awaken, and restore awareness of a sovereign and powerful God. I love that word, disruptive. I believe if there's anything that really captures revival well, it's that word disruptive. There are moments and places and spaces as you read through biblical history of God working among his people that he's steadily at work, he's steadily at work, he's steadily at work, and then a place is come to, a, a Mount Sinai, a moment, a, a woman at the well, a, Lazarus that we're going to talk about today, a moment in which the pattern is disrupted because God wants to move something or someone forward in an incredible way. He wants to break something or shake something or stir something. And it's what I'm becoming more convinced of than ever is it's not an either or issue. It's a both and issue. Let me say that again. It's not an either or issue. It's a both and and issue that as God's people, if we're really walking through what he's done throughout human history, we will understand that God is both steadily at work with his people and as he is steadily at work shaping and forming and speaking to us, there are also moments and places and spaces in which he interrupts the normalcy to reveal, to rebuke, to restore. I read a book 23 years ago called Intercessory Prayer by Dutch Sheets. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it slower because I'm actually recommending this book to you. It's old. I guess it would be a classic now. It wasn't a classic then. Intercessory Prayer by Dutch Sheets. I'm always really hesitant to, read to, to recommend books, not to read books, but to recommend books or any of that sort of stuff, because the problem is I can't, I can't recommend or not recommend Dutch Seats to you. I'm not telling you to go online and listen to all the sermons. or I don't know. I don't know what has happened in the last 23 or 24 years in, in that guy's ministry. But I know this, at that moment in time when I read that book, that there were things in that book that just absolutely revolutionized my life. And it brought together a lot of these pieces of my life growing up in a very charismatic Pentecostal environment where there were these moments of moves of God, but also growing up in an environment where I was taught to follow Jesus. And this book was brought together for me. And in the book, Dutch Sheets defines intercession. It was the first time that 
that I'd ever, because I'd, I'd grown up when people were intercessors, right? They would pray and there was this grandma around the altar or there was this person and it was especially during these times of revival and there would be people around the altar and, 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 and they would like start interceding and you would hear them like groaning and any of you ever have those experiences? And I'm like, as a kid, you're like, what is weird? What is going on? And somebody lean over and they'd be like, oh no, they're interceding. You ever have that? And someone would be interceding, and it always seemed to happen around these moments of revival. And while I had experienced it, I didn't understand it. I certainly didn't understand it biblically. And I read this book, Intercessory Prayer by Dutch Sheets, and he defines, he, he defined intercession. And he said that word intercession is, is a, a biblical word, paga, and, it, and what it really means is a meeting. That when intercession takes place is it's a meeting. And in that meeting, something changes. In that meeting, things are renewed or restored or broken or released. And, and so we as God's people have been called to follow in the pattern of Jesus as the great intercessor that we as God's people have also been called to be intercessors. That it's not just there's a, per, you know, because we all had that one lady in our church or those couple of guys, the weird fringe people, and they were the intercessors and the rest of us were less spiritual and we heard less from God and we had to wait on them. Anybody besides you guys, come on, there's got to be somebody here besides me. Like in the rest of us, we were just kind of spiritual peons, but they were the spiritual giants. Like, and we had to wait for them to do their weird stuff in the corner before we could, like they would just keep playing that same song on the piano over and over and over again until Sister Sally was done. <laughs> right? Hello? And that was explained to me, oh, she's birthing something. <laughs> Look at an eight-year-old boy, I wanted nothing to do with that conversation. <laughs> Like, that was not something I could, like, wrap my brain around. Around 23, 24 years ago, I had the privilege of being in the room when something was birthed. And all of a sudden, something began to change and something began to, and Dutch Sheets said, look, it's Paga, it's a, it's a meeting. And, and I, you know, I, I didn't have that gift. I wasn't Sister Sally in the corner doing, I was, that wasn't me, so I just thought I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with that, but in his book, he helped me to understand that a lot, for a lot of years, what I've been re referring to as revival and what I've been referring to or understanding as these moments of meetings with God really was something that God had called his people to over and over and over again. And the story that God was writing in his people that I read throughout scripture really is the history of people moving from space to space to space. And as they move from space to space, there's this consistency of living out the revelation of God, but then there are moments when the revelation is delivered these paga moments these moments of birthing these moments of meeting with god and this call to intercession is also the same call that i felt in my heart the hunger that was in my heart to meet with god and for all of these years as a child growing up in the church, what I longed for and what I desired was is for me to daily meet with God, but for us as a community to meet with God. And I loved those moments. I loved when they announced a revival and brother so-and-so was going to come and we were going to have a series of meetings. I couldn't wait until it happened because I knew we as God's people were going to meet with him. 
And what I also knew was that I had a cousin or an auntie or an uncle or a, a neighbor or a friend that somehow or another, because it was a special meeting, we were going to be able to get them there. And if we could get them there, all I knew was if we could get them there, God's presence was going to be so real and so tangible, a meeting was going to take place. And what I knew from my life experience up until that moment was that if people had a meeting with God, something was going to change. I don't know about you, but I am more desperate than I think I've ever been in my life to see people have an encounter a meeting with God. I've never been more convinced than I am right now that in the city of Durban, in this spiritual environment, in this socio-political environment, in this world that we live, that the only thing, the only thing that's going to change things is a meeting with God. Is an encounter with a living God that is bigger and greater and beyond. See, a mistake that we make, a mistake of revivalism, and the mindset around revivalism is that we view it as a departure from normal life of the church. We think that I thought as a kid growing up, I can't wait for revival. I can't wait for people to come meet God because that's different than the same old boring church that we have week in and week out. The same old we come to church, we all get here five or ten minutes late, the worship's already going, bless the heart of the worship team. I'm glad they could start without us. But they start in and, and we come and we sing the same three songs and then the pastor gets up, and then he takes up the offering, and then he gets up and yells at us for an hour, and then we all go home. But revival meant something different. It meant something disruptive. And in my mind, growing up, I always thought that that was, that was something that was different or supposed to be different than the life of the church or the life of God's people, but to understand the pattern of the development of God's people through history is to understand that disruption, moments of meeting, paga moments, moments of intercession, moments in which people encounter God are not something that should be out of the ordinary. It actually is a part of the pattern. It's a part of the cycle. It's a part of the cycle of how God moves and works in his people. In other words, disciple-making and moments are meetings with God are all working together hand in hand in the process of what God wants to do with and among his people. That he's moving us from moments of meeting with him through lifetimes of living out the implications of that meeting to the next moment of meeting with him. And while we do it daily in our daily 20, we also are supposed to be doing it in community. See, historically, as you study revival, if you go look up what is revival, what you're going to read as authors and theologians and church historians are going to say to you, revival is about these moments in which God's people collectively come together to meet with him and something happens. For us, 
we have to understand that biblical revival includes a pattern. It includes a pattern of awareness, contrition, confrontation, and ultimately transformation. That this pattern that we call revival, these moments of meeting that we call revival are a part of the process. That we cannot say that we're going to avoid that because we're a disciple-making community, so we don't want to get caught up in that. What I would argue today is as a disciple-making community, revival and moments of meeting, paga moments are a part of our discipleship. In fact, if you read and you watch and you follow the ministry of Jesus, the perfect example of a discipler, he moved his disciples through times and seasons where they walked and they talked and they dealt with character and they dealt with issues, and then they had moments moments of encounter with God that it's not either or but it's both and and we cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater just because there are those who've had moments but haven't walked out or lived out that moment in the past so what does it mean for us what does it look like for us to live in the pattern of renewal or revival or paga or meetings with God. Well, this morning, I want to just very quickly have us visit a, a story in Scripture uh, that I know is familiar to you, so I'm not going to have to expose every detail of the story, but I do want to look at it just briefly this morning because there's some things that I believe illustrate very quickly what it means to have revival, what it means to experience awareness, contrition, confrontation, and ultimately transformation that I believe earmarks moments of revival. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was uh, from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When we talk about revival, we have to, we have to understand that revival starts with a growing sense of awareness. Pastor, what do you mean by awareness? What I mean is, when you study biblical history, God's people start to become aware of their need. And out of that awareness of their need, out of that awareness of their need is this passion that starts to stir to pursue Jesus to pursue God, to pursue God's hand. Also, what we understand when I talk about awareness is that awareness is not a matter of all of a sudden God becomes aware of our need, but we become aware of the fact that we need God. God never stops being aware of us. This very familiar story, which is a story of resurrection, if you will, of revival, if you will. I'm using it this morning because it perfectly illustrates these people who loved Jesus and had relationship with him. 
and yet they found themselves in a situation in which they desperately needed Jesus, and they sent word for him, Jesus, please come and do something about our circumstance. They became desperate. They became aware of their need. And as you study biblical history over and over and over again, there is this pattern. This pattern exists where God sends his law. He sends his revelation to his people. His people start to live out his law or his revelation or whatever might be the case. And over time, they get into a pattern of life and a pattern of living. And then they find themselves in a place far from, far from where they intended to be and where God intended to be. And somewhere in that, they say, we need God. We desperately need God. And that's where this concept of intercession comes from because in scripture they begin to intercede they rend their clothes they put on sackcloth and ashes they begin to seek God they begin to intercede and they begin to say we are hungry we need God this year we started with a fast and we asked the question how hungry how hungry are we how hungry are we I'm wondering I'm wondering, have, have we followed the pattern of Scripture where we've become so accustomed to just being God's people, to having his, 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 you know, his, his rules, his laws, his ways of doing things? We come to church, we go through the motions, we do all the stuff, and we're in the pattern of being God's people, but we're not in the pattern of meeting with God. Like how hungry, how desperate are we? Well, here's the thing. When crisis comes, it makes you aware of your need. Not for just the name of God or the stuff of God, but for God and his presence. Mary and Martha and those who loved Lazarus were aware. We need you, Jesus, here with us. Now, Jesus, Jesus wasn't shaken by any of this. He knew what was going on. This isn't going to end in death. This is for the glory of the Son. God isn't shaken by our crisis, but we are made aware of our need of God through our crisis. That's good stuff right there. That's the history of God's people. That's the history of revival. That's the history of moves of God. Is that pattern over and over and over? God, God was not shaken by political unrest in this, in this city a year ago. Or around a year ago. It didn't shake God. It didn't shake the kingdom of heaven or the foundations of the kingdom of heaven. God's still God. He's still on the throne. It didn't make him any less God. The bad behavior of some people didn't make God any less God. But there are those of us who all of a sudden looked out our window or looked out our door and realized that life is fragile. And what we thought was strong and stable could be taken from us in a moment. And realize that we need God. Floods and electrical outages and lack of water and all of those things, they don't shake God. But it provokes within us an awareness. I it doesn't matter how strong I am. It doesn't matter how secure I am. It doesn't matter what money I have in my bank account. Guys, in July of last year, I had money in my hand, but I couldn't get a loaf of bread. There was none to be bought. It taught me 
I can pay my water bill, but the water line's busted. I can't get any water. I may be strong and secure. I may have worked hard and provided for my family. I may have done all the stuff a man is supposed to do, but it doesn't matter when there's no water pipe coming to my house. When there's no water chuck to go get water from, all of a sudden I am aware that I am fragile and I am in need of something bigger and stronger and greater and beyond me. Awareness provokes within people a desire to meet with God. And I just wonder, I wonder in 2022, are we still, after what has happened in this city, after what has happened in our lives, are we still so arrogant that we don't understand that we are in need of a moment of an encounter with a God? I'm going to tell you, I've got stuff in my life, and actually, it's bigger than not having water to bathe in, and it's harder than not having a loaf of bread. I've got stuff in my life with people I love and care about right now that if God doesn't show up, if he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't step in, there's no hope. There's no answer. And I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, how desperate are you? How desperate are you for your kids? How desperate are you for your grandkids? How desperate are you for your neighbor or your loved one? How desperate are we for our city? How desperate are we? Are we still in a place of arrogance? Sadly, as you read the pattern of scripture, the problem is, is that man goes on and on and on and on in his arrogance until he breaks down to the fact to realize, I, we need God. Lord, help us to understand that we need you. But here's the truth. Because God loves, he responds. As adulterous and distorted and stubborn as his people have been throughout human history, over and over and over again, what what scripture teaches us is that when God's people become aware of their need for him and cry out to him, he responds. He loves us so much that he responds. And even though, get this, you gotta get this, even though he didn't respond the way Mary and Martha thought he should respond, when he thought they should respond, how they thought he should respond, he responded. Can I teach you something about revival? It's what I was saying earlier. It probably ain't gonna come packaged the way you think it's gonna come. Maybe it won't happen the way you think it should happen, when you think it should happen, how you think it should happen. I believe one of the greatest hindrances to the next move of God is our stubborn insistence to hang on to how the last move of God manifested itself. Some of us can't see God at work in 2022 because we're expecting him to work the way he did in 1972 or 1982 or 1992. We want to see him sing we want to sing those songs. We want to see him do those things. We want to see the word of the Lord come that way. We want to see the power demonstration happen this way. And because we're so fixated on how it happens and where it happens and what it happens through, we can't see that he's at work in a way that we don't necessarily understand or would have never expected. God desired to use what was happening in Lazarus' life to demonstrate his power. Because God loves us, because we have a contrite heart, a heart that says, God, I need you, 
And in his love for us and our reach toward him, he responds. John chapter 11, verses 20 through 26, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you want. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I love how her theology had given her the capacity to make an excuse for God to not move in her circumstance. How many of us, are, our theology has given God an out in our circumstance? Some of us have developed a good theology, a good apologetic to provide for and allow for God to not intervene and interrupt our circumstance. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? But I'm looking at you, Marthas. Do you believe this? You say you believe it. You sing songs about it. Do you believe it? Yeah, but there are these times that it didn't happen. Yeah, there are these times it didn't happen. There's times that God didn't heal. Does that mean he's any less of a healer? Where in his word did he tell you to stop praying for healing? Tell me. Show me. I don't care about the books. I don't care about the sermons and the podcasts. Show me. Show me in scripture where he said, you know what, Randy? When you pray and nothing happens, that's okay. Just stop praying. When you fast and they stay the same, that's okay. Just go ahead and, and let me off the hook because you know what? I may get a bad reputation. Where does it say it in scripture? Well, isn't that hard to walk in the tension of that faith? Yeah, in my flesh it is hard. But in my spirit, as we've talked about before, there's this stubborn insistence upon just taking God as his word. Well, I can't see it. Well, that's why it's called faith. That's the very definition of faith. Some of you have prophesied, some of you have prophesied things over yourself and your family and this city, but you live today as if you don't believe it anymore. Some of you have been a part of moves of God in this city long before I ever got here. And I want to ask you the question, do you still believe God for that stuff? Some of you moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas have seen God do unbelievable things in the past. Where are you at? I need you. My kids need you. Some of you young people have seen God do unbelievable things. The, the, the road's gone hard. Lazarus got sick. It didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. And now you're making excuses. 
for your faith, to try to keep your faith alive. Can I let you in on something today? You didn't bring your faith to life in the first place, and you don't have to work at keeping it alive. What do you mean, pastor? Scripture teaches us that the only way that any one of us have faith to begin with, to come to God, is that God the Holy Spirit initiates it within us. Our faith, even in the beginning, is a work of God's love and his grace and his desire to meet with us. That's how much he desires to have a meeting with you that he puts within you the capacity to come to him in the first place. So what are you saying, pastor? What I'm saying is in the same way like a child in the beginning that you said, I don't understand it all, but here I am, I need you. We have to stay in that place. Some of us have become so sophisticated and so mature in our theology that we have apologetic Jesus out of doing his work in our lives. I need some miracles. You need some miracles. The city of Durban needs miracles. The nation of South Africa needs miracles. Miracles. How does it happen, Pastor? It happens when we make room for Jesus, when we meet with Him, when we stop offering excuses. We say, I don't really understand this, but here I am. And he says crazy stuff to us, and I'm sorry, I'm out of time. I, don't, I could read the whole passage to you. When he says crazy stuff like us, like, hey, take me, take me to the tomb, and let's, let's roll that stone away. And the sisters are like, we can't do that, Jesus, because that's not our burial-like rites as Jews. We don't mess with this stuff, and like, we can't do that, and it's going to stink and there's a rock in the way, and our traditions are in the way, and Jesus says, no, roll the stone away. Don't worry about the stink. I'm going to do something. Revival is a disruption. It's not a discarding. It's a disruption. It's a disruption of the norm, and it may require things of us it may require things of us that are outside of our box. It may require things of us that challenge us. But are we willing? Are we willing to be disrupted? In our TikTok age, if worship goes longer than 13 minutes, people start getting restless. Will this ever end? Can we sit down now? Because you have been wired, your brains have been wired to have an attention span of about a minute and 30 seconds. 140 characters. You've been wired to have no attention span. But revival, birthing, intercessions, meetings take time. You know what you've taught me, South Africa? You've taught me that meetings take time. You've taught me to slow down. Durban, you're especially good at it. 
You've taught me to not be in such a hurry. You've taught me that communion isn't a two-minute thing that we do on Sunday morning with our plastic-wrapped cracker. You've taught me that meetings take time. We work to make church as short as we possibly can because we've got to honor your and my attention span. But I, I'm sorry. What I read in scripture is that meetings take time. And unexpected things happen like stones getting rolled away and stink has to be dealt with. Some of us don't want to have that meeting because we know in the meeting stink gets dealt with. Some of us don't want to have the meeting because we know the rock gets rolled away.